0: Podcast, or you can look at all three spares in the time it takes you to walk from Seven Sisters uh, to White Art Lane. And don't forget, you can follow our Facebook page or uh, we are on Twitter at cock and ball underscore pod. I'm Tom, aka Fen. Uh, once again, I'm joined by the socially and mentally distant, it's Ash. Good evening. <laughs> and in perpetual lockdown with the numbers that make the game, it's Jules. All right, mates. And our resident non-Spurs fan in isolation, or in this week's case, self-isolation, his gym. Hello. So our week started with an away trip to the Belgium High Flyers Royal Antwerp in last Thursday's Europa League fixture. Uh, with their masterclass in defending an after toothless attack, it culminated in a 1-0 loss for us. Ash, were we ever going to score in that game, or was there more chance of the government feeding kids at half-term? <laughs> Yeah,
1: I mean, yeah, the um, the government have been more critical and attacked than we have, haven't they? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it was, I mean, first things first, Antwerp absolutely deserved a win. There's no two ways about it. They they set up to um, to be solid at the back. <laughs> <laughs> Just about. Yeah, no, he wasn't good enough. I mean, th- what we learned from it, though, is that I what I learned from it really is that we're probably one centre-back away from having a starting lineup up you're winning the league. But realistically, we're probably about four players still short of having a squad that's likely to actually challenge to the final day.
2: I think four might be a bit ambitious. Maybe if the four players are like Virgil, Messi, De Bruyne, and I don't know, like, I, I think you've always got to bear in mind that, you, that the best a club usually does is about, what, an 80% hit rate in the market. Of kind of successful signings so i think we're still probably at least two or three windows away and that'd be if we pulled some real magic out of the hat from from being capable of it
0: well we made four substitutions at half time i can't actually is that the first time in in history in a competitive game that four subs have been done at half time uh obviously ali Bergvine, vinicius uh and the notorious glc hauled off at uh, half time but with the players that were brought on, Hojbjerg, Son, Lamella, Lucas, I feel like even without Ndombele, there was enough quality there to, to make something of it. And ultimately, we still didn't, which partly suggests, all right, fair play, the opposition having one of those days where they're just not going to be broken down. But at the same time, for me, it highlighted, again, those key positions where the depth that we thought we had isn't actually there. And it's something that people have gotten a little too excited about, that clearly we're another centre-back and another centre-mid uh, away from a really good squad.
2: I also think it's really important that the best teams have the ability to rotate in players who can then perform at that level, um, switch in and out to kind of ensure a consistent, almost like output. And I was a little bit disappointed because I'm such a big fan of his, but Bergvine sounded like he didn't really have any impact um, you know, seeing Ali get dragged off like that, I just feel like our first eleven maybe can challenge for some interesting games. But across this year, we're gonna need, you know, if we go deep in a couple of cups and maybe Europa League run, probably gonna play sixty-five odd games. Um and you know, in in that kind of light, we need to have players who when they're rotated in deliver a little bit more. Um I don't think Bergvine uh, has got a goal or an assist yet this season, and he must he, he's had about five or six opportunities now, either off the bench or starting games.
0: I think what surprises me is that these players get an opportunity like this to come into the team. Yes, I get that they're not match sharp because they're not playing as regularly, but this is their opportunity to push their way into what is a, the sort of main starting 11. And they, they never really seem to show that. I don't, I don't want players like that who aren't as willing to kind of break their way in because I feel like it's just not there. They seem too complacent.
3: There are some players that have to have like, if, particularly if they're on the fringes of a squad, some need the, basically the kick up the arse where they get the occasional chance to make an impression. Uh, and if things don't work, it's, it's generally the same kind of players that need taking out of the firing line when things aren't going well. And then there's another type of player that needs to to play into form. And if you're not quite on it, you can lose your place in the starting eleven. but then the only way you're ever going to get your form back is by consistently playing and getting game time. And I wonder whether a few of those fringe players are that kind of footballer. Are they just, you've just got to persevere with them for a little while before they actually start to see a, a sort of return on their efforts and they don't quite ever get a long enough run to make an impression
1: if that was against a stronger opposition then i would probably say yeah fair enough they haven't had a, a, a string of games and they haven't played often together um and no disrespect to antwerp but the players we put in there whether their matchup whether they've played the last three games in a row or they haven't played in in a month they should still have performed better than they did and to some extent i would even say that i mean we've mentioned bergweiden and he in particular it seemed like they went out there with trying to, trying to do too much to prove that in the first team there was a lot of very very selfish play going on Bergwein in particular the amount of times he cut in and just you know had a, a tame effort at the keeper or, or ran into danger they they tried too much and like I said before even if even if they haven't played that often against a team like World Antwerp they should have at least given it a better crack than they did.
2: There's a balance uh, between kind of you know we can talk about match sharpness etc. But also just kind of desire. And I'm sure on the training ground, you know, Mourinho makes a big deal about he wants to have a group of players so that people are challenged into into really kind of training well and not resting on their laurels. Um, I thought it was interesting, and I know I'm skipping ahead a little bit here, but Eric Dyer, um, I think it was today or last night, came out after the um Deli Alli was left out again for the weekend Premier League game and said, well, he needs to show more in training. He needs to be more committed. He needs to show more desire. And I thought given Dyer's almost been basically like a bodyguard for Deli Alley <laughs> for the best part of the last four or five years, um, I wonder if Dyer's maybe just a little bit sick of him wasting his undoubted talent. Like Dyer's clearly quite a bright guy. You can see that from his broader business interest and his kind of wider self. He's a very close friend with Jan Vertonghen in a quite critical if people didn't show the right attitude. I wonder if there's just a problem here with a few players just not showing it in training and just kind of resting on their laurels a bit.
3: I wouldn't be worried in the slightest about the Antwerp game because it doesn't really matter. still going to go through. Everybody has an off game sometimes, and to be honest... Thinking about it super critically, I can kind of understand why you might not be up for that game. The thing that would concern me more would be the response afterwards from Jose, which was, if I could sub off all 11 players at half-time, I would have done. And all I'm going to say is, he's been here before at United, he's been here before at Chelsea, he's been here before at Chelsea... (laughs) Uh, (laughs) keep an eye out for that
2: well look i mean we're we're what we're we're a year and well not even not even quite i suppose we're we're just coming up to our our anniversary with jose yeah i mean
3: admittedly this year has lasted for about seven centuries
2: i was gonna i I was gonna (laughs) say i feel like this year's gone january february covid december um but (laughs) but separate to that we're about a year in with jose now you know it's going to be toxic by three years so therefore you've got basically a middle year now where there's kind of hopefully some kind of sweet spot and it might involve him giving people a bit of a bollocking. And I'm not, I'm not opposed to that personally. I think that's a, a healthy thing to have in a dressing room if people are, are, not, are not performing well.
0: No, we haven't got time for passengers anymore. If we want to get stuff done, we want to win trophies again. We can't have these people hanging about just picking up the old game here and there and not really... Giving us anything, and you talk about Jose digging us out and the start of toxicity. I think it's a bit too soon for that. It's classic fake news from the resident journo. Um, <laughs> because come come the Brighton game, all right? Yeah, we still looks a little bit rusty, but full strength starting eleven and Lamella, uh, and we edge out Brighton in the two-one game at uh, White Hart Lane. The first goal came about from Kane aimlessly reversing into Lallana uh, and converting the subsequent. Penalty. Uh, Jules, is that? I'm going to say this with a slight smile. Is this a part of Kane's game that you like?
2: No, because <laughs> it's dangerous. And I'm, I'm going to take umbrage with one part of your your very leading question there, um, <laughs> which is which is the word aimlessly. Kane is very clearly knowing what he's doing there. He checks his shoulder twice, and he's got an absolute habit of doing this. Um, you know, he's he's there are so many examples of him seeing defenders coming particularly when they're challenging for the ball in the air backing into them and then he knows as soon as he feels contact he he goes down um I think look you can have a de- there's always a debate to be had on certain things and I know I think Jim is probably a little more pure perhaps than the rest of us when it comes to gamesmanship and whether that's a good or a bad thing I just think it happens so you've got to get on with it um but the thing for me more is that it's dangerous play knocking a player when they're in the air like that uh, and and disrupting them, making them fall on their side, on their front, on their, you know, potential on their head or their neck. You know, in rugby, it's a red card offence to knock someone once they're in the air. In NFL, once a, once a player is kicking the ball, a quarterback, you're not allowed to hit them because it's dangerous play to to another person. And I don't think we can sit here and say, oh, well, what Pickford did with Van Dyke was, you know, dangerous and risky and then not recognize when our own player's
1: doing it I think that'd be really hypocritical I completely disagree with uh with what you've said there to be honest I don't think what Harry Kane done is at all comparable to what Pickford did in absolutely siving down Van Dijk at knee height uh, a lot of people have said and I think you've said it yourself as well that Kane knows what he's doing and that to me is completely irrelevant it doesn't matter that he knows what he's doing he's um, getting himself into a position to protect the ball should it come to him, and he's got absolutely every right to do that. And a lot of people will also say, oh, well, what's Lallana supposed to do? But Lallana doesn't have to jump for that ball. Yeah. In fact, because of the situation he's in, what he should be trying to do is get goal side. There's no need for him to jump through uh, f- jump through Kane the
0: way he did. Fent, you're unusually quiet on a topic like this. What do you think? I'm unusually quiet because I'm still on the fence. It comes at a strange time because he's um, Kane's just recording on Tuesday night. Um, Sky Sports have just done an interview with Kane and he's defended himself a bit by saying, well, in the same way that you're shielding the ball when it's going out for a goal kick, you get yourself between man and ball to protect the ball. So obviously he does have that look over his shoulder because he needs to see what he's up against. In his... The defence that he is giving is that he will be looking over his shoulder, seeing that Lalana is is going to come in, and he wants to get between the, the ball and Lalana, and takes a stance. And Lalana jumps into the back of him. And I, I'm not sure whether it's six or one, half a dozen of the other. I think, okay, Lalana does jump into Mac of him, but he knows Lalana's going to jump.
2: One thing I always notice the difference between is if you're both challenging for the ball in the air, and if one of you refuses to. Because if, I, if Kane there jumps and challenges with Lana for the ball, wins the header and gets cleared out, I, I, I wouldn't have an issue with that. But you remaining on the ground and destabilising someone at a height which forces them to land in a dangerous position is very different. He's not competing for the ball. He doesn't jump and try and head the ball as well. He's doing something which he knows is, is risking that player's
3: health. It's interesting to hear what you had to say, Jules, because I hadn't thought about the safety side of it until you said. I totally accept that. Good players will try to get themselves between the player and the ball, and I think that's fine. But if you watch what Harry Kane did there, he isn't looking at the ball. He's looking at the opponent, and he checks twice. He knows exactly what he's doing, like Jules said. And he doesn't just allow Lalana to jump into him. he leans into it to make it look like Lalana jumps into him and he does so with the express intention not of winning the ball but of going down and winning a penalty and so therefore what he's doing is not I don't see that as gamesmanship. gamesmanship to me is putting the ball in the corner or a little pinch as somebody goes past to let you know that you're there, (laughs) trying to win a penalty by essentially going completely against the spirit of the game, if not necessarily the rules, I just think is a a really negative thing for players to do. And I think it does end up coming back to bite you on the arse, as Spurs found out later in the game, which I think we'll get onto. I, I think it's a spectrum between, at one end, game management, which is kind of, you know, You can sort of call keeping things tight, doing the basics well when you're protecting a 1-0 lead. Somewhere after that, you've got the gamesmanship stuff, which you're you're totally right, does happen. Players do leave a boot in longer than they should or do sort of slightly snide little things that are within the rules. And then there's another level which I think it's not what we should be doing. And for a player of his quality, I just don't think it's necessary to resort to that.
2: I think I'll put it. it's interesting just before, uh, and I think Ash might have left, he's he's clearly not happy with my diagnosis of the situation. <laughs> um, I think it's interesting because Jim comes at this from a moral angle over whether or not he's conning the referee, whether or not he's looking to initiate contact, not to play the ball, but to gain a penalty. And I presume, Jim, you'd, you'd make a similar argument if uh, I'm thinking of those penalties when a striker essentially knocks the ball around the keeper and then leaves his foot there so the foot will touch the goalkeeper as he dives over. So Jim's coming at it from the from the moral point of the game, like any good sensible historian would. I come at it much more just from the healthcare point of view, which is the same reason why... Um, I don't know if you remember when Leno was struck mid-air by Mopé in the Brighton Arsenal. Mm, yeah, I, yeah. I think that's fair enough. Uh, the other thing I would say
3: is if you take the view that the penalty in the Champions League final in 2019 shouldn't have been given.
2: Dangerous.
3: Which um, <laughs> I, I used to think, you know, full disclosure, I used to think that it was a penalty and then I recently saw it from another angle and I've changed my mind. If you think that, that penalty shouldn't have been given, then you should also think that the penalty that Harry Kane won against Brighton shouldn't be given either.
0: I'm going to put it this way, because we're going to go on all night. If you take, don't look at that incident in isolation. You needed to watch the way our front three was going for aerial balls throughout the game. And there was a common theme that It was quite clear that because of the nature of Brighton's back line, it's very tall. We weren't going to win balls in the air. That battle was always going to be lost. We didn't challenge for many aerial duels. Uh, they quite often just, just put pressure on them and look to win the second ball. And that probably comes down to the uh, intelligent Burke side that, that Jose tries to instill. Uh, so I have a slight bit of cynicism about the whole thing when you look at the game as a whole. Speaking of the rest of the game, uh, <laughs> uh, VAR certainly played its part. It obviously didn't have a, a second opinion of uh, Terry Kane's penalty. Um it denied Brighton a clear penalty, which I think was blatant, the Doherty pulling back on um, I think it was Trossard. Uh it's just so frustrating that we can't find non suicidal right backs at Spurs anymore. Uh but then there was obviously <laughs> the VAR review uh on their equalising goal, um where Hoybeer looked to have been allegedly fouled. I think that's what I need to say, isn't it, Jim? Um
3: yeah, that's I mean that's exactly what I mean about uh, the chickens coming home to roost because there were a few times there's the cane penalty there's son on one occasion I can think of went down like a sack of shit with a minimal amount of contact yeah uh and if you're a referee and you keep seeing that you're then inclined not to give that team the benefit of the doubt and when you look on VAR uh with the Hoibier incident yeah totally like the referee got it wrong VAR got it wrong. I don't know how they didn't correct d- that. D- did it shouldn't he? have been a penalty. I think but so. Did he not get it the sh- ball? I, uh, I don't... Th-
2: yes, he did, got, he did get the ball, but he got the ball, I think, as a result of playing the man. You could see there was no change in the revolutions of the ball and that therefore he hadn't touched it.
3: I, I think he got like a, a toe on it, but I, I actually think it was the Brighton players' trajectory that changed the movement of the ball. But But whether it should have been given or not, Spurs are not going to get that decision because of the way they've been playing. When you're trying to buy cheap fouls throughout a game, you're then going to find at some point that the opposition is going to get a cheap foul against you. It's not even necessarily about all oh, this thing we were saying before about like the moral side of the game. It's actually just, I think, just good tactics that if you play well, you're not going to then be punished for the same kind of shithousery that you dole out.
2: The player I always think of is... Um... Luis Suarez, who spent the first year being an, an insufferable diver in the Prem and then spending the next two years getting the living shit kicked out of him without ever getting a penalty because every ref assumes that he was diving when it, mm. when it wasn't a dive. Um, and I think, you know, Kane, if Kane in the next match goes past the player, gets clicked on the ankles and falls, that ref is now going to be very aware of... What's being said in the media, the pressure that Kane's put on people, this, this belief that, oh, he gets away with it because he's England captain and that's why he hasn't gotten red cards and that Alan Shearer used to do the same. And he's building, unfortunately, like he sort of, he's allowing himself to be tarred with that stereotype, which I think mm-hmm. is ultimately, as Jim says, to the detriment of the team. And the, more, the most important thing, of course, is that then along came Gareth and it all got a little bit better. <laughs>
0: I'm glad it didn't take him. I don't know how many games it was before he won a game for Spurs. I'm glad he was actually able to find a winning goal. within That's 27
1: like, or something, wasn't
0: it? <laughs> something like that. And he's managed to do it in what, five or six appearances. Mm. In days. And he took it well as well. A really cracking header to do under pressure. Mm, get yeah. power on it. Get precision. Yeah. I didn't know he had that in his game. Well, but he didn't, Kobe, did. he?
2: Last time he was at Spurs, he didn't have that in his game. Jozo made that point midweek where he said, you know, people were sort of expecting him to be full of that kind of ridiculous pace and dribbling and and playing out wide. That's not what he's become. He's he's probably got greater goal threat than he did when he was that player for us. And his headings, you know, he, he he's developed really well in the air at Madrid and, you know, has really impressive like sort of hang time, but you know, I, I I think he'll probably score more goals for us now than he would have done at 23, but he, at the same time, he'll probably get far fewer assists.
0: Aside from that, more generally from the individual incidents that we've sort of focused on, I did think we, although, yeah, OK, we struggled, but give Brighton credit. They, they made it very difficult. And strangely, we we held on to the game. And I thought we actually managed it fairly well. And there were a few players like, yeah. You know, Toby and Dyer, I thought continued to show well, that they're our best centre-back pairing and I thought we managed it well in the end
2: I think those two really need to be the linchpins at the back now don't they they need to be the, um, the kind of the basis on which we build around um, and again I thought I thought Reguilón had a really good game pushing forward from left back brings us so much incision um, so nice to see that versus Calamity Davies during the week um, <laughs> Just so enjoyable. I think, you know, that, that, that axis with, with those two and with um Heusberg holding, if that's you know, if you had said to me at the start of the season, six games in are we now, that we'd be second in the table, we'd have smashed up United, um, and we'd we'd look like we're starting to get a good defensive structure in place, I'd have bitten your hand off. So I think we need to be, maybe myself included, a bit more bit more positive, lads. <laughs>
0: We've spoken uh, out against authority, mainly VAR, quite a lot so far. So in the past week, uh, on the 1st of November was the anniversary of uh, what famous Tottenham calamity, where they had a little brush with the authorities. I'll give you a clue. It was in 1893. (laughs) That's not a clue. (laughs) I'm, of course, referring to the Ernie Payne affair. Does that ring any bells?
3: Almost 100 years before I was born, so surprisingly not.
0: (laughs) Hmm. Yeah, basically, Fulham alleged that Spurs poached one of their players, obviously, namely Ernie Payne, um, which we were found not guilty of because Payne hadn't played for Fulham for quite some time. However, Payne's boots mysteriously went missing And Spurs gave him 10 shillings to buy a new pair. And and that was found to be an unfair inducement. Uh, Spurs was suspended for two weeks and Pay was suspended for a week. Uh, Weirdly, it was strangely a catalyst for Spurs to turn professional uh, in 1895 and become the mighty club that they are today. So uh, that's a bit of um, unknown history for us. It it, it kind of reminds me of when that, uh, was it some sort of builder's yard on the other side of Paxton Road before they knocked it all down? And they refused to move, and then it mysteriously caught fire. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm actually reading at the moment the uh, the Wenger autobiography. I just laughed hearing about how when he was at Monaco, he managed to get um, get them to sign Hoddle, of course, our our lovely legend. Um, and he had originally agreed a contract with another club, and it was just a case of who could get the letter there faster. To the authorities to, to, to get the guy <laughs> across the line. So Monaco ended up having three or four years of bread model off the basis of Royal Mail first class or the didn't equivalent. Didn't
3: that happen with um, that happened, Was it with Rubini?o That happened with.
1: I thought he was going um, to Chelsea, the, didn't he? He was at the yeah um, and, he and then press conference. The, he
2: had the Chelsea yeah, seat. and City came in and went, no, no, we'll have him, thanks, lads. <laughs> <laughs> Tottenham were meant to have John Moutinho if not for one of our assistants in the office. Screwing up the fax machine, I believe.
0: We signed um, Ida Good Johnson. I don't know how true this is, but apparently he landed at Stansted Airport on his way to see West Ham and signed for them. And literally standing outside <laughs> with a you know a taxi sign saying Good Johnson, which must be hard to spell. Uh, apparently Harry, Harry Redknapp and Daniel Levy accosted him as he left the airport. And good visit to sign for Spurs, but I don't know how true <laughs> that is. Anyway, Ludogorets on uh, Thursday in the hashtag #Europa. Jim, what is a Ludogorets? Is it a football club or an extreme board game? <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh, a Ludogorets is yeah, like you say, it's a it's a board game played by uh, Welsh footballers who are on loan from Real Madrid. Um, yeah, no, they're an interesting side. Uh, se- second Bulgarian team for Spurs of the season after Plovdiv. They're a little bit like the Chelsea or the Man City of Bulgaria or, more accurately, the Bayer Leverkusen of Germany, but actually with some success because they they were bought by a pharmaceutical uh, conglomerate guy about 10 years ago who decided that he wanted to create Bulgaria's biggest football club and did. Um, They've won nine successive league titles, top of the league again, so they'll make it 10, I'm sure. And they've kind of they've done okay in the in the uh Champions League and the Europa League for a team that doesn't have you know, a Bulgarian league with the minimal amount of respect we can get away with is crap. Um <laughs> so you know, they they've they've done all right. Uh, they're apparently very proud of their crowning achievement was winning at Lazio in uh twenty fourteen, I think it was in the Champions League. And uh, they apparently built up a bit of a good relationship with Lazio and a friendship. And that's kind of led to a few uh, loan deals and also a good relationship with other Italian clubs. And this kind of all led to a really weird thing. So Lidogaretz are called nicknamed the Eagles and their their club badge is this slightly threatening eagle that looks like it's going to uh, attack you. Uh, so Lazio gifted them an eagle called Fortuna um, so a little bit like Palace but <laughs> maybe not as tragic they have this um, this eagle before games uh, uh, and then the uh, the only other interesting things I know about them is they have a winger called Jorginho and for the uh, slightly less mature among us they also have a guy uh, midfielder called Dominic Yankov. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's oh, very interesting, thank you Well, We've got West Brom at the weekend in the hashtag Barclays That's um, our second pay-per-view game in a row uh, Quite frankly, none of us think that's right Last week I managed to go to the pub to watch the game instead Because you could support a pub And uh, as I understand it, pubs don't get charged the extra fee to show box office games They can show them essentially free But obviously this week, <laughs> we won't have that option Because of uh, hashtag lockdown 2 Ashton Jules, have you been working on an alternative suggestion for dealing with this pay-per-view crisis?
1: Yeah, so I'll, I'll try and keep it short and sweet for you. But essentially, it's it's not something that hasn't been suggested before. It's essentially Netflix for football. Um, but here are the reasons why. So according to the BBC, the Premier League riots, um, i.e. to show the Premier League games in in the UK, were sold for £1.488 billion per season between 2019 and 2022. If we're looking at general figures, it's really hard to get without, you know, trying to do a Freedom of Major request. But Sky Sports, it looks like they're averaging about 1.6 million views per game, and they show normally three games a week, with BT showing a, a further game as well. Now, the average Sky Sports package on Now TV is £33.99 per month. Uh, and if you want to add BT on top of that, that's another £25. Let's say that we add all the um, average viewers per month together from just the Sky Sports. So that's 19.2 million viewers per month. And now I've got to put the caveat in there is that there's no way of knowing whether they are 19.2 independent viewers or whether it's the same people watching both games on Super Sunday, for example. Um, but let's, for the sake of argument, let's say 19.2 million people of viewers, um, and they all pay 30 pound a month to a Netflix type subscription for 11 months. That would bring the Premier League 6.336 billion pounds per season. Now, because of that point I just made um, about it's unlikely that they're all going to be individ- individual, pay, um, you know, subscription holders. If we, even if we halve that they're still getting, you know, two point six four billion pounds per season, which is significantly more than what they're getting. I just why why are they not doing it? Even if they you can still make the argument of, yeah, well they want to keep their Saturdays three o'clock free or whatever, but they still can. And they might make the argument, Yeah, but we want to keep fans in stadium. Well fine. Drop the prices of season tickets then and and seat tickets, then you won't have that issue. I
3: agree yeah. with all of it. Really good idea. Like f- Football viewership figures are always quite poor. And I think the record for a, a, uh, a pay-per-view game uh, in the UK is about three million. So it's not huge, but the, the appetite is definitely there. And it's interesting because since uh, football's restarted with the lockdown and this season, uh, there's been agreements to show football league and non-league games on streams The number of fans of those clubs that can suddenly see their team on the telly every week, home and away, uh, have really enjoyed paying. All right, it's not it's not 15 quid because because that's daylight robbery. But, you know, (laughs) between 750 and a tenner generally uh, for streams that are usually really good quality. More people watch non-Premier League football in person per week than watch Premier League football. So a good way to kind of make something like that work is just not even just make it a premier league deal, just make it a football deal that goes all the way down to whatever level it's viable at level five, level six. And just you pay in your 30 quid. And then whether you want to watch Spurs or Lake Orient, you can just, like you say, go onto that platform and watch what you want to watch. And I, th- I actually think it's, uh, there's a, there's a problem that's going to come down the line when fans start to go back again. But In the meantime, it does seem like a good opportunity to give people access to something again, which is uh, to be welcomed, I think.
2: My personal approach to the whole pay-per-view situation has been to not pay for it at all and put 20 quid a month into uh, Fairshare, which is the food bank charity that um, Marcus Rashford's been working with. And I think personally, there's much better things to do with our money. Um, than pay an exorbitant fee like that. It's a really good thing
3: that like lots of fans have raised a lot of money for, for fair share and other things, and that's a, a really good thing. The teams generally at the bottom of the Premier League, and particularly uh, West Brom and Fulham, have been absolutely shafted by the situation we find ourselves in, because their leads are a little bit different because they knew they were going up, and frankly, they're a better team, but uh, Fulham and West Brom went up in really weird circumstances, almost got promoted by accident. And not, So not only are they getting spanked most weeks, but they're never on the telly. So their fans have to pay an exorbitant amount of money to watch them get spanked every week. <laughs> it just must be so utterly miserable to be a West Brom fan at the moment. I mean, I'm, yeah, I can imagine is. it usually is
2: anyway, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah fulham is my local club and i've got a few friends who are pretty sort of die-hard fans i think they're just i mean they're enjoying the ride in in terms you know it's nice to be it's nice to be in the prem um but i do think you're right i think you know that these are the clubs which are going to be pretty 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 hard hit um and particularly there was, there was the suggestion about whether or not the parachute payments would get withdrawn potentially and for clubs which are I mean that that base just really entrenches clubs so that they can't really move up or down. Some some interesting uh, stats that might sort of apply to your idea, Ash, is
3: at um, at Stockport County last year we were getting average around about five and a half, six thousand supporters at home games, which included not generally not very high away figures so it tended you know the, the core support was the the vast majority of that this season it probably would have been higher in a normal time because of the expectation but they released the figures the other day for the streaming of home games and they were getting more than 9,000 unique streams per game and for every one stream you can make the assumption that if there were a family of you know a dad and a son or whatever they were only buying one stream Mm -hmm. so that's a sort of even at worst case scenario that's a 50 percent increase in the number of people engaging which kind of just goes to show the potential of actually allowing fans to see these games um and particularly at the moment when people are pretty miserable about life i think Regardless of who you support, it's actually just nice to have that, isn't it?
0: All right, scores on the doors. predictions, ludicrous, Thursday. Uh, we'll start with Ash, what you think? <coughs> Let's hope we can scramble a 2-0.
2: I'd go for a 1-0, boring
0: away win.
3: 3-1, Spurs.
0: Mm, I'm going to go with 2-1, Spurs. Right, West Brom, tools what are you saying?
2: I think we'll turn up. I think I think there's a little bit of form and momentum about the place now. Um, so I'm hoping for 3-1. And it'll probably be Grady Dingana who scores against us because he's bloody good.
0: The next West Ham. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're everywhere. <laughs> love it. Yeah. It's a game we've
1: got to win because we've got just a... Ridiculous run after the um, after the international break. I don't know if you've, you've seen it. So hopefully we can get um, we can get a few points on the board before we go into that break. I like, hopefully see a three-one Spurs win. Um,
3: I think probably keep a clean sheet against West Brom. They, if you have the ability to keep it tight, generally they don't get a sniff. So I would say two 0 Spurs.
0: I'm mm-hmm. going to be bold and. Go for four 0 I think we're due a <laughs> bit of a spanking to someone. I'm really so.
2: looking forward to now seeing like a drab one. Will
1: draw, by the way. I think we will. Per- <laughs> Pereira scoring the 90th minute free kick to win it for West Brom. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds well, like let's...
3: it's going to be one of those situations, isn't it? Like after last week, where nobody, none of us predicted anything but a win, and then and then Antwerp happened.
0: Yeah, we don't talk about Antwerp. We probably shouldn't talk about the. Uh, the winter fiction schedule at Spurs Arda, because if you haven't seen it don't look it up it's pretty <laughs> terrifying uh, let's try and end on a cheery note uh, as lockdown 2 looms uh, hopefully this brightens up uh, your lives a little bit in the world of Spurs because um, Spurs quite often struggle to do that um, Hope you will stay safe and well as we go into this new lockdown it's going to be tough for a lot of us uh, and if you want to cheer yourselves up just fo- follow us on Twitter it's always a laugh um, shameless plug there